Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Thank you all for subscribing on iTunes and following me on social at Primalosophy. If you're a new fire recruit or firefighter, just shoot me a message at Primalosophy.com and I'll teach you everything you need to know for career-long well-being. My guest on the podcast today is writer, food activist, and radical environmentalist Lier Keith. Lier spent 20 years refining and restricting her diet in search of better health, but her health was getting worse and worse until finally a doctor told her she'd die if she didn't eat animal-derived foods. This led to a major shift in perspective and a deeply controversial book, The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability. We cover health through an evolutionary lens, sustainable farming, myths of plant-based diets, how to save the soil, and much more. If you like the podcast, do me a favor, hit subscribe, and please share. Enjoy. All right, Lear, thank you so much for coming on my show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for those who are a little less familiar with you, I mean, it's been some time since your book came out. You're the author of The Vegetarian Myth. Just give us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this point. Uh, yeah, so I, the reason I wrote The Vegetarian Myth was because I spent uh, 20 years of my life being a vegan, and it failed utterly, which it will do, and I ended up with fairly catastrophic health effects from it, and it was a long, slow process getting out of it, and I wanted to understand, I wanted to understand why it failed, because it was supposed to cure all the ills of everything. It was supposed to save the planet. It was supposed to save animals. It was supposed to be the best diet for humans. It was supposed to provide for human justice. And the deeper in you get to all of those topics, the less true that is. So in the end, I had to give it up. And then you're sort of left in the wreckage. Like, well, what now? If this didn't work, you know, what is my place in the universe? Like, who am I in the cosmos? Like, it was catastrophic, you know, on every level. Um, and I ended up writing a book about it because I, I, I couldn't leave the scene of the crime. Like I had to understand what I had done. And then beyond that, I really wanted to get the people who care the most about the planet and about justice and compassion to understand the real roots of the problem and that veganism is not really the best solution to the problems that we face because the commitment of the people who take on something like veganism is is quite clear and their value system is not the problem like that is all good but Mm. a vegan diet is not really the best way to embody those values and it's not going to do anything to stop the destruction of the planet so i really needed to understand it for myself and i really wanted to reach out to essentially the next generation of idealistic young people and tell them that this wasn't going to work before they did what i did so that's why I wrote that book. I've written other books as well, but I think that's the one that uh, most people have read, and that's sort of what made me infamous. <laughs> Not famous, but definitely infamous. And controversial, in the least. Yeah, of course. So you said you were a vegetarian for years. I mean, how long did it take until you really started noticing these health effects? Honestly, the health effects made themselves clear in a few months on that diet, but I was all in. You know, it's like joining any kind of intense subculture where you think you have the answers, you know, it felt like the best way, the only way, the true way. And I, I couldn't give it up. So I just kept doing it. Um, and I just ground my body down till it was damaged, but it took a lot, it took a long time for me to psychologically come to grips with the fact that it wasn't going to work, but the health effects were pretty, pretty severe, pretty quickly. I would say that the first problems I started having were certainly within six months. And by the time two years had passed, I was doing massive damage to my joints and that you don't get them back once they're gone. So, 
um, yeah, it, it was not a good thing to try. Yeah, well, we all want to be a part of like a movement, especially when we truly believe deep down that we're doing good. I know, and that's, I mean, that's, that's really the issue with this. And I really do try to emphasize to anyone who is confused or especially to anyone who's already kind of in vegan world and is looking for a way out, like it doesn't change the nature of who you are. You can still be the person who cares that deeply about animals and the earth and justice and compassion. You really can. It will not change those things. Like those values are correct. Those are the only values that are going to get us to the world that we need. The question is like, what is the best use of those values? What do those values look like, you know, in, in our daily lives as we make these choices and then, you know, globally, in our political institutions. And, you know, the, the problem is that veganism does not provide that answer. Mm -hmm. You realized that it was having negative effects on your health, but what did you realize as far as, you know, the killing of animals goes? So, you know, that was the thing I held on to the longest was surely there's a way for me to exist without doing harm to other sentient beings. So the first problem, of course, is that you're presuming that plants are not sentient. And of course, the more you look into this and the more you experience yourself with this directly, um, plants are just as sentient as animals. The difference is that they don't move, you know, they're rooted in place. So their communication looks a little different than ours and their defense mechanisms look a little different because they can't run and they can't vocalize. So it's easy for humans to say, oh, well, they don't count, they don't have consciousness. But at this point, science is really catching up to sort of the gaps in this sort of mechanistic worldview that would say that plants aren't sentient, and in fact they are. Um, and they communicate in really incredible ways, mostly through chemicals. They are the sort of original chemical warfare experts of the planet, if you will, because that's how they have to do it. You know, we're great at running and making weapons to defend ourselves, and they're really great at making chemicals. So they can instantly send messages both through the air and through the root system to warn their neighbors. Like let's say a bug comes in and starts eating the leaves on a plant and the plant will immediately warn everybody else in the neighborhood, hey, I'm being eaten by this stripey caterpillar. You wanna crank up uh, your insecticides right now because they're coming for you next. And then all the other plants in the neighborhood will do that. They'll start putting out the insecticides that they know how to create to ward off stripey caterpillars. Mm -hmm. um, another like really interesting stuff about, I live in the redwood forest and there oh, are, yeah. oh, they're amazing trees. Um, there are albino redwoods. And, you know, just like with animals, they, you know, they lack the, um, that genetic component that turns them green, right? So they can't photosynthesize is the main issue because they don't have, you know, I don't even remember what it is, but they're lacking that thing that lets plants photosynthesize. And that means that they're sort of this strange gray-white color because they're not green. And so how are these trees surviving? They can't actually get basic energy because that's where plants get it is sunlight. And they can't do it. They can't do that conversion. And the reason they're alive is because all the other trees in the neighborhood feed them through their roots. So they share the energy that they have with their sick neighbor who will never get as tall as other redwoods. The, the albino redwoods are only about a third the height of the other redwoods, but they're alive. And wow. they are valued members of their community, just like you would feed a sick friend or a sick relative or a sick child. You know, we all care for the people in our community. If we're decent people, plants are the same. They care for each other. Um, and that's the most striking example because these plants would, would never survive without help. They have no way to get primary energy, and yet they do. Um, and then, you know, sort of the deeper philosophical questions of, you know, 
we do this because it makes us, I mean, I would feel, we would all feel terrible, right? If we weren't helping our loved ones in times of need, you know, if we had a sick child and we didn't help or, you know, as our parents are declining and we don't help, it, it helps us to help them because we do the decent thing because that's who we are. Um, but also you do wonder about these trees, like, do they have a specific gift that they do give back to their friends and neighbors? Like, is there a mutual exchange here? And we'll really never know. I mean, we can't, we can only know plant consciousness, you know, to a certain degree. Like some of this is definitely a leap of, you know, trying to understand how we feel and then how much can we transpose that onto what they feel. And we don't know. This is something that we can really never prove, but it, it does make me wonder, like, so what is what is the role of those trees in that community? Are they do they have some kind of special knowledge that only they have access to? Are they telling something back to the other trees that you know, are they really good storytellers or do they have some kind of wisdom that the other trees, you know, really really need or really want? I I just wonder about the mutual mutuality because that's what nature is, right? It's a series of mutual relationships. Yeah, Very complex relationships, right? So what are the albino trees giving back? To their community because you can bet they're trying to get back something i just don't know what it is and like i said we'll probably never know but i think it's worth considering that that's that's probably a factor in here somewhere anyway plants are very very sentient so this is like the first problem when i became a vegan you know i wanted to be the person who didn't make hierarchies that said animals are as important as humans animals count they suffer their lives matter to them but then I was drawing this whole other hierarchy. Like I had just moved the line, right? It's like, okay, but plants, now plants don't matter. I can do whatever I want to plants because mm -hmm. they're not animals. And that's exactly what most meat eaters would do. They say, well, humans matter, animals don't. And so as a vegan, I extended that line a little bit. Okay, well, animals matter too, but of course plants don't matter. And I was never happy with that answer because I could see that plants were quite sentient. I could feel it. You go out in nature and you know that you are part of something that is just an extraordinary kind of web of those interlocking relationships. And, you know, every wisdom tradition that's sort of older than the Abrahamic, you know, sort of Western thing will tell you that plants are the elders and that they have incredible wisdom to tell us. And they are the original healers and that they are our grandparents. That's often what's, you know, the word that's used is they're your grandmothers and your grandfathers. And that's true evolutionarily speaking, like plants are what created both the cradle of our atmosphere and then the blanket of our soil. Like without those things, there would not be animals and yeah. plants were what did it. Like they literally are our elders evolutionarily speaking. I mean, we branched off from them a long time ago, but without them, we wouldn't be here. Like all that we needed was provided by the plants. So, you know, without microscopes and without archaeology, lots and lots of indigenous people know this. Mm -hmm. And they know it because, according to them, they communicate with plants. They know how to talk to the elders. This is not a skill I was ever told. I doubt it's one I'll ever really have. You know, like it, it gets closed off at a certain point probably in our brains. And we don't live in a culture that teaches us that. And it's incredibly sad. But I believe that it's true. Like the few times that I've had those experiences, they seem quite real. I can't prove it, but <laughs> they yeah. seem very alive and very loving to me. And then when you see the incredible things that we now know that plants do for each other and for animals, um, it seems true. Like they do care about us. And, and this is a planet built on love, really. So I wanted to make that line be, okay, animals count, plants don't, because I'm going to kill on plants and eat them. So I had to make them be this other thing that, that, that who didn't have moral standing. And ultimately, when I had to give up being a vegan, 
I realized that like drawing a line is the problem, that there's not a line, then honestly, it's just a circle. And mm. it's called the circle of life. And every last creature depends on the deaths of other creatures. Like a, a friend said to me, this was her from her wisdom tradition. And she just looked at me very kindly with a lot of compassion because I was really suffering with this. And she just said, you know, for something to live, something else has to die. Like just that basic. And I was like, wow, I should have known that when I was four years old, but I didn't have anybody to teach me that I had to stumble along till I figured it out. But you know, there it was just said so patiently and so calmly. And I suddenly understood like, yeah, you're right. It's a circle. Mm -hmm. So I will live and hopefully I do that humbly and well and with great respect to all the lives that are going to feed me. And then it will be my turn and I will die and I will feed the circle of life back. Like it's, we are all members of this tribe called carbon. And eventually, you know, every last little molecule of me will be taken back up into that cycle of life and I'll feed the plants and the animals. And that's the way it is. And there's no way out of that. Once you take birth and you are here on this planet and you have a body, whether it's a plant body, an animal body, a bacteria body, you need energy right? You're going to feed on other creatures in some way. And our only hope is to do that well, to be part of the death that's feeding life rather than to be the death that's killing life. Those really are our only options. But it took me a long time to get to that. Right. The circle of life is efficient and it's been happening for millions of years. And it's really hard because I still feel tremendous sadness when I see it. You know, like outside my window, I live in a very rural area. We have bears here. We have mountain lions. It's absolutely incredible to have these apex predators here on my land. I feel so honored that they are here and they eat, you know, there's no way around it. So just a few months ago, beginning of the summer, I found a wounded bird in the driveway and it's always this like, you know, I'm now involved because I've seen it. So what do I do? Because if I try to fix the bird, which of course I'm very compelled to do, I hate seeing things suffer. What that means is there's another animal that's not going to get dinner because that's what they eat. Right. And they especially hurt the wounded and the sick and the very young and the very old. They eat the vulnerable ones and they keep evolution moving that way. Right. Like like this is this is how the tree of evolution is pruned is by this kind of predation of, you know, whatever sort, whether it's bacteria eating creatures or viruses attacking or, you know, bears and mountain lions eating hurt birds like, you know, they're trimming that tree. And if I try to help this wounded bird. I am literally taking food out of the mouths of the foxes and the mountain lions. And it's really hard to know, like, is this my, my job here or should I just let this bird will be gone by morning? Do I fix it or don't I? And it's really hard. I mean, it, it's the same thing on a smaller scale outside my window all the time. There are spider webs and I hate it when the bumblebees or the, you know, the native bees get caught in the webs. Like I hate that half an hour while they're buzzing frantically and trying to get out of the web. And it's also true if I take, that insect at the flying insect out of the web, the spider now has no food. Mm -hmm. So I can save the bee and starve the spider. And is it my place to interfere or just accept this is how nature has worked this out over billions of years? Like it's, you know, and it's hard. Like I hate it that anybody suffers. It's not the world that I would have made, but on the other hand, it is a very perfect world. It's so beautiful out there. And this is what makes it lush is the fact that everybody's going to die and everybody's eating. And that is literally the same moment, like the dying, the eating and the living. It's three different, you know, like, but, but it's the same, like that is what keeps the cycle going, but it's very hard on me. Like some people might not have 
it's it's just very emotional. Like it just makes me so sad, and I just can't stand that anybody feels fear and suffering. And I just I just wish it could always be quick and over in an instant. Right. And that's not really how it works. Like there's sometimes you know a 20 minute, 30 minute, day or two gap between when the suffering begins and when it's over. And I I really that I hate. I I just can't. I can't wrap my mind around the amount of suffering sometimes, but I, it is absolutely counterbalanced by the amount of beauty. Mm-hmm. Like when I see the mom, mother bear playing with her babies, it's just the sweetest thing. And it's just like, you know, us and our children and your dog and her puppies. And they're just having the best time. They swim in the pond and the mom lies in the sunshine and goes to sleep. And then the babies splash around. And of course you think about all the times you went to the ocean with your siblings or went to a swimming pool and just had a day in the water. And it's exactly the same thing. And they're just having the best time. And there's that too. Like there's just that incredible, the love and the beauty and the fun part of it as well. Yeah, it's like the gift and the curse of being human is you have to yep. be aware to know all yes, this stuff. You have to feel it all. There's, And I remember somebody else said to me once, you know, it doesn't have to feel good, but you do have to feel it. And I think that that's also crucial. Like we have to know that all of this is true. It all comes as a package. There's profound suffering and there is also profound love. And it's both. You can't, you're not going to get one without the other. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, some facts are just undeniable. I mean, this isn't us versus them. This isn't, you know, vegans versus carnivores. This is, vegans aren't uh, up against the paleo community. They're up against evolution. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yep. So I, w- I thought we could start with just talking about what happens to the body. You, earlier you mentioned these plants have plant defenses. They can't get up and run. They don't mm-hmm. want us to eat them. Although, you know, we can live in accordance with nature and appreciate them. They don't want to be eaten. So they have these superpowers that affect our bodies and cause autoimmune conditions. Correct. So <laughs> the thing about plants is they figured out how to fight back. And if what they're saying is, fine, you can eat me, but you're going to get really sick if you do. Um, and that'll teach your descendants not to do this again. So especially seeds have um, a lot of what are called anti-nutrients. Some of them are out and out toxic. Like you can't eat raw legumes. I mean, it's just like such a bad idea. You can die from it. Right. Um, all right, fine. Soak them, cook them, try to get the anti-nutrients out, try to get the seeds themselves to disable the anti-nutrients. Humans are, you know, we're very clever. We figured out ways to try to disable them, but as far as I'm concerned, most seeds are never going to be edible. And that includes most grains. Like no matter how much you do those processes, the soaking, the sprouting, um, the fermenting, you mean you can try and all of those things will help. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of us end up with autoimmune diseases, myself included. I've got three now. Um, and it's that's like the main thing that kicks it off is these plant lectins. Um, and this is one way that plants fight back. Uh, soy is especially a bad one for humans. Uh, One of the ways that soy fights back is by having what are called phytoestrogens. So these are substances that look almost exactly like human estrogens, but not quite. So they will, your body will try to use them with your estrogen receptors. So they'll plug the estrogen receptor up with this kind of fake substance. So your real estrogens can't even get in anymore. Um, And instead, you've got this sort of sort of pseudoestrogen that will act something like your body's, but not really. So, you know, in my case, eating soy meant that, I mean, that whole time I was a vegan, I barely had a menstrual cycle. I would go eight, nine months without getting a period. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. The only thing that doctors could say was, well, you could go on the birth control pill. I'm like, I don't really want to go on the birth control pill. I'd rather figure out what's wrong. Well, the answer was super obvious. The moment I stopped eating soy, two weeks later, I got a period. And then Mm -hmm. for the rest of that decade and a half, 
it was every 28 days like clockwork. This is after 20 years of basically nothing. I mean, my case could not have been more direct. And it was absolutely the phytoestrogens in the soy. And this is soy saying to the human race, you can eat me if you want, but you're not going to have babies if you do. And it's just that simple. They figured it out. <laughs> Plants are not stupid. Yeah. This is how we can get animals to never eat us again, is we will make them completely infertile. Um, the phytoestrogens also are obviously not going to be good for men's bodies either. You don't want a whole bunch of estrogens if you're a man. You want just as many as your body are making and no more. Um, and so, you know, it, it totally messes with men's reproductive health as well. And poor, um, and these poor babies with the soy formula. Oh, it is heartbreaking. There are infants who are already going through this sort of precocious puberty. Like it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. They've had have had infant girls that have had tiny little menstrual cycles. Um, they get their first menstruation while they are still in diapers, and that is triggered by the phytoestrogens. They say that giving an infant uh, a soy-based formula is like giving them a chemical load equivalent to four birth control pills every day. Now, nobody in their right mind would do that to their infant on purpose. And we've all been sold this kind of greenwashing on soy products. So I know people think they are doing the right thing to give their children soy formula, but it, this is absolutely a nightmare. Um, and I've had, you know, some correspondences with some of these parents who have now figured out what went wrong with their kids. And of course, they're devastated that they did this to their children. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. Um, and a lot of them, you know, they were vegans and they thought it was the right thing. And then at four years old, their little girl is developing breasts. And and it's even in the medical record where the doctor says, withdraw from soy right now. Do not ever give your child soy. And the parent, you know, because being a vegan can be so ideological, like these poor moms, they fight it. They keep doing it for like four months, six months, and the kid keeps getting worse. And finally, it's like, I have to face facts. This is not working. I've been lied to by somebody. And then they find me. And then I get this just heartbreaking email. And what can you say? Like, well, the kid's really young. You know, maybe... Maybe there's still, you know, it may straighten out and fly, but it may be permanent. I can't pretend that, you know, we know the answers here. When you've done that to a child for four or five years, those are very formative years. You've already, you know, done all kinds of endocrine disruption at that point. Like, I can't promise you this is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. It may be, but it may not. Um, not to so, mention anyway, it's always accompanied by glyphosate. Yes. Yeah, there's always that too. Like just the amount of pesticides and then the sort of, you know, on steroid level, you know, with, with what... Um, you know, that like hyper, hyper kind of stuff that we've done now with these these plants, genetically engineering them, and then, you know, the, the chemicals that are required to grow them. And it's just, it's absolutely horrifying mm -hmm. what's out there. And we are somehow being told that this is the way forward. And it, it doesn't actually make any sense if you sit and look at it. You know, our bodies have nutrient requirements. We need to meet our macros and our micros, and we can meet all of these needs through animal products, right? Yes. With, with that being said, though, I mean, we are not out here advocating for factory farming. No, and that's like another really important point that I, I think everybody can agree that factory farming is a nightmare, just on every level. You know, it's environmentally destructive. It's hell for those poor animals. I, I don't think anybody with a beating heart can look at that footage or the photographs or even read descriptions and, and not agree. So I think that's something we could all get behind. And um, I do wish that, it's just sad to me that the animal rights people and the vegans 
kind of won't get on board with the rest of us because I think we would be so much stronger together to make even temporary alliances against things like factory farming. And mostly the vegans and the animal rights people won't. They won't work with anybody who's not a vegan or doesn't believe in veganism. And it's really sad because there's a huge upswell of people who eat completely different diets, like, you know, paleo, grass-based, you know, soil building kind of diets. And we are just as opposed to factory farming for the same reasons. Um, and it just seems like, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the feet not to work together. But um, yes, absolutely. It's I, I think it's very easy to draw a hard line there for all of us to say that taking animals out of their native habitat, feeding them utterly bizarre food for their digestive systems, and essentially torturing them is, is not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since get going away from vegan, what changes have you noticed in your body? And what, what are you eating basically now on like a, on a daily routine? So some of what I did to myself, you know, is basically permanent. So it, I'm not going to get relief from everything. And that's quite clear because, God, that was 1999 when I stopped being a vegan. So it's been a good long time. Um, I have seen very good results. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in dramatically less pain than I was. So, okay, so one of the big things that I did was I destroyed my spine. I have degenerative disc disease at four levels at the bottom of my spine. And that started when I was 18 years old. So two years into being a vegan. And it took me a long time to figure out, first of all, it took me a long time to get a diagnosis. Because if you go to the doctor when you're only 18 and you have sort of bizarre pain <laughs> in your in your bone, you know, in your joints, in your, in your spine, they really didn't know what to do with me. It was like, it can't be anything serious. You're too young and you didn't have an accident. Like normally if you come in with a car accident, at least you'd get some respect, but mine was completely idiopathic. So I just kept getting sent home, you know, like with a pat on the head. Well, it might be muscular. And I was like, this is not a muscle problem. I can, I don't know what it is, but it's not that. It's a totally different kind of pain than muscle pain. So, you know, it took a very long time. Also in the early eighties, they didn't really have MRIs the way they do now. But the moment that I finally got an MRI, you know, in the, in the, in the 1990s, um, then it became apparent what was happening. It's like, oh, well, discs are supposed to be white and puffy and yours are flat and gray. So you basically destroyed your joints. We don't know how you did it, but this is quite clearly why you are in life-altering pain. So, you know, then you, you know, finally having a diagnosis I could look into. So what is this? What does it mean? What's the way forward? And there's really nothing you can do. It's, there's no way, you know, with knees, they can at least replace knees, hips, there's hip replacements. The joint replacements they have at this point for discs are kind of, they, they basically suck. They're not really any good yet. There's stuff coming down the pike. Who knows? Maybe in 10 years, there'll be something else. But as it stands now, I'm, I'm just stuck with it. So I do live in kind of morphine level pain on a daily basis, but it's about half as much pain as it was. Um, and that's kind of, it's a minor miracle because the, when you have conditions like this, it only goes in one direction. It only gets worse. Like they cannot repair discs. Um, there's very poor blood flow to, flow to joints. That's especially true for discs. So the moment that uh, you know, it starts falling apart. There's not really any putting it back together. So I was only supposed to have, you know, less mobility, you know, less capacity and more pain as time went on. But honestly, two or three years into eating, stopping all the veganism, taking out the soy, doing all that, and then eating meat, bone broth, super nutrient dense, great quality fats. It did take two or three years, but all of a sudden I was in less pain, less pain, less pain. Yeah. And then it was sort of wait and see, like, well, how much less pain am I going to get? Like, I don't think this is going to back up all the way to when I was a teenager and I'm going to have a normal life now, but I will take whatever I can get because by the time I was done being a vegan, I couldn't even sit up more than about 20 or 30 minutes at a time. Like I had to lie down after 30 minutes of sitting 
because the pain was so intense. Like I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't go out to restaurants. You know, I couldn't go, I couldn't, it was that constrained of a life. It was really hard. Um, so suddenly to be able to sit up for two hours, for three hours, for five hours was like, wow, like life is so much bigger. Um, and even if I push it in terms of like standing and walking, which I still can't do for very long, I can at least get through an airport now. Like I can at least walk through the grocery store now. Like I have enough that my life feels it's constrained, but at least fairly normal daily activities are very possible for me. Um, and if I push it and it's, it, it's, you know, and I have to do more for whatever reason, like if I'm traveling or something, I know that I will feel better in a day or two. Whereas before, if I pushed past a certain point of pain, it would be bad for two months. I mean, I'd be flat on my back on ice packs until it finally subsided. And this is like, yeah, whatever, you know, it'll be bad for a few hours, but by tomorrow morning, I'll be better. And by the next day, I'll be back to baseline. And that like, I'll take that. If it's all I can have, I'll take it. Like it's way better than it was. So all right. So there's those kinds of problems. Now, some people who haven't done as much damage, you know, they go on this sort of better diet, like more fitting of the human template, and they do see complete relief. So if you haven't done super damage for decades, you really might be fine, you know, in a year or two of eating a more appropriate diet. I have absolutely met those people and more power to them. That's fabulous. So there's that. Um, we've got the autoimmune problem. Yeah. Um, so I now have three autoimmune diseases. It started with Hashimoto's and then it moved on. I also have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, going gluten-free was huge for the Hashimoto's. It was very, very dramatic. Um, and I also take low dose naltrexone, which I highly recommend to anybody who has an autoimmune disease. It's a really interesting approach. Um, it works by blocking your, uh, endorphin receptors for about an hour. Um, that's why it's called low dose naltrexone. Um, naltrexone was actually developed for people who were, heroin addicts because it because it blocks those receptors it's one of those it's like an antagonist so if you then take heroin you don't get high from it mm -hmm. so it's kind of a way to force people not to take it the problem was people couldn't survive being on it because they felt so desperately flat and depressed being on it um, so it didn't really work for that though if you turn up in an emergency room and they think that you're ODing from heroin you will be given you know an emergency dose of it and it can still save people's lives but didn't work as a heroin treatment but then people thought well what else could we do with this and it turns out that endorphins are actually really important for your immune system it's not just to make you feel good in your brain it's actually one of the building blocks of your immune system so anyway long story short by taking a tiny little dose of this stuff every night uh, it fools the body into thinking oh no we don't have enough endorphins because the receptors are blocked. Your your body sort of gets the signal that you don't have enough. Yeah. So it sort of cranks up on its own and it makes anywhere from 10 to 100 times as many endorphins all of a sudden. So you have this big flood and then your, your immune system takes them up. And in my case, it worked overnight. I mean, I'm not kidding. The very first night I took it, I was a different person the next morning. And immediately my TPO antibodies dropped to almost normal. 20 is considered sort of the the break-even point for a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, and mine are at 21, so it's like as good as it's going to get. Mm -hmm. um, the thing about autoimmune diseases is once you have them, it's basically impossible to turn them off. What you can do is kind of calm it down to the point where you, you can be asymptomatic, but it's always sort of waiting in the wings. Your immune system is sort of on hyper alert all the time. It's sort of what its job is, is to recognize invaders and then kill them as fast as it can. So it's always going to kind of do that, but you can make it sort of calm down and just take a little bit of a chill. Um, and I feel like that's what I did. The problem is that, you know, once you have one autoimmune disease, you're 40% likely to get another one. And that's because 
it's essentially the same process. Like they're not really different diseases. It's just your immune system, not super happy with any invaders at all. And it's going to find other things to attack. So that has happened to me as life has gone on. I have developed more of these. Um, and I don't know, like, you know, if I went, if I had never done any of this, would I have ever had an autoimmune system? My guess is I don't know because it does run in my family. It might have happened anyway. The problem is that we know that hunter-gatherers don't get autoimmune diseases. These are classic diseases of civilization. So even if we carry that genetic component, what turns it on, honestly, is eating agricultural foods, is eating grain, you know, it's eating those annual monocrops. Yeah. So with a focus on with a focus on prevention, I mean that's what, why you wrote this book so you could yeah. help people prevent yeah. these conditions. What should they be asking for when they go to get like a micronutrient panel or something like that? I mean, are these signs and symptoms or these deficiencies? Do they take a really long time to show up? I think most of them do, and the real problem is that you know every time you're eating, say wheat, you are just flooding your bloodstream with gluten, and gluten looks an awful lot like some of the, the the proteins that line up, they look so much like the proteins that make up our joints, for instance. So now you're confusing your immune system. Like, well, is that me or not me? And if your immune system decides to tag that particular string of proteins as a not me, it's now going to see it everywhere. It's going to see it in your joints. It might see it in your thyroid. It might see it in your brain. You can get all kinds of horrifying autoimmune diseases. And it really goes back to the fact that we're eating food that we were never meant to eat. Mm -hmm. Like that stuff should just stay away from your mouth. Like just don't eat it. It's just not a good idea. And especially if you know that there are autoimmune diseases in your family, it's not worth the risk. Like we know that wheat is so overimplicated in all of this. There's no point in like, just don't do it to yourself. You, you, once the process starts, it's really hard to stop it. So don't start it. Like just don't eat it. You don't need it. All you're going to do is spike your blood sugar and give yourself all kinds of problems. And it, there's nothing good to be gotten from it. It's essentially just empty sugar. Like why? Like you could eat an egg instead. You could eat some nice cheese instead. You could eat bacon instead. You could even just eat a little bit of fruit. Like yeah, and if you're not ready to introduce these these meats and stuff back in or eggs yet, you can still yeah. do yourself a huge service by eliminating the grains and the sugars and the vegetable oils. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's like the number one thing. Like keep the soy out, get the polyunsaturated oils out. Um, definitely don't touch gluten. Like if you still want to eat rice for a while while you're figuring this out, that's probably the safest one. I still wouldn't go there given my health. But, you know, if you're basically a healthy person trying to figure this out and you're really not ready to go completely paleo, like rice, seem, rice and potatoes seem like the safest ones. Um, but that's a decision everybody has to make for themselves, clearly. Yeah. Anyway, so – I'm so, I know I was answering something. I don't remember what. <laughs> well, no, we were just talking about trying to make sure that we weren't letting these nutrient deficiencies go unrecognized. Yeah. So yeah, part of it's the nutrient deficiencies. And then the other problem is the excesses. So when you're eating, you know, your sort of plant-based diet, you've got way too much sugar. You've got way too many omega-6s. And both of those things are, and too many of the anti-nutrients as well from the plants. So mm. all of those things, it's basically impossible to be a vegan and not get that, those problems. Because even if you decide, well, I'm not going to eat grains, I'll just eat nuts instead, you're still going to have way too many omega-6s. So the omega-6s create inflammation all over the body. Um, and, the, and they have also, you know, nuts have just like seeds, just like grains. I mean, they're still seeds, so they have a lot of anti-nutrients. But the omega-6s are a real problem. And uh, at this point, the American diet is so out of balance that 
a lot of people, when they test their bodies, they don't even have, there's no trace of any omega-3s. That's how few omega-3s are in our diets. And part of the problem is, you know, this huge push to eat, you know, way more carbohydrate and however many servings of grain they're now telling people to eat, 20 or 30 or whatever, however many crazy servings. But even if you're eating more meat than that, the problem is that the animals themselves aren't eating the proper diet. So if the cows and the chickens are eating, you know, way too, too much grain, the meat and the dairy products from those animals are also going to be way too high in omega-6s. And they're going to be lacking the appropriate fatty acid, prof fatty, fatty acid profile. And also the, um, the proteins are going to be wrong. Like a lot of these, if, if it's like a, a cow in a, a feedlot situation and just eating corn, the tryptophan completely disappears from their meat because corn is low in tryptophan. And as at this point, I think most people know tryptophan is the building block of serotonin. And this is absolutely one of the reasons that we have a depression epidemic in industrialized nations. It's like, even if you're eating what you think is a, a good diet, if those cows came from feedlots, you don't have any way to make serotonin. Like the building block is simply not there. Mm -hmm. That is not the appropriate diet for cows. And the meat that's produced is not the appropriate you know, profile for the human body. Both the fats and the proteins are gonna be wrong. Accompanied by B12 deficiencies and yes. these other fat soluble vitamins. Absolutely. It's kind of a disaster, and the longer you do it, um, the more damage you're going to do, and it's inevitable. Like there's, you're on a nutritional drawdown from the moment you take up a kind of vegan or a plant-based diet, mm -hmm. and it's just a question of time. Like if you have more stores, you'll last a little bit longer, but eventually, you know, the rubber hits the road. Like we ourselves cannot produce vitamin D, vitamin A. We can't. We have to eat them, and the only place to get them is in animal fats. What about the vegan diet being better for the environment? Okay, so it's it's a lie, um, and it's I mean there's just there's so much misinformation out there. It's like hard to back up and start sort of from square one. And part of the problem is that we have real information, and that information ultimately has to accumulate into knowledge. And the other side, what they have is mostly slogans, so it's really hard to counteract it in thirty seconds. Um, so start from the beginning, like what is agriculture? So you take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it. And I mean down to the bacteria and then you plant it to human use. So you're going to grow an annual monocrop. You're going to grow wheat or corn or soy or whatever, but it's only for humans. So we got a couple of problems. The first is that all the plants and animals that need to live there, that have nowhere else to go, that call that place home have now been pushed off into extinction. They've literally have no other place mm -hmm. that they can, like, that's it. You've taken their home away. We are now losing 200 animals every single day to extinction. 200 species every day go extinct. And it's because of agriculture. Mainly corn and soy. Well, that's it. And this yeah. is all for this reason, okay? It's, I mean, ultimately, this is the problem is agriculture. So it's not the solution. Um, the other problem is that it destroys the soil. Every time you rip up those perennial plants, whether it's pulling down the forest or plowing up the prairie or draining the wetland, every time you do that, you are destroying the soil. Um, the soil needs the perennial plants. The perennial roots of those plants are what literally hold the soil in place. Mm -hmm. And you can see photographs from the first day of the Dust Bowl in places like South Dakota. They lost all of their soil in one 24-hour period. 
and you can see, go look at the historic photographs. It's the most stunning thing ever. It's like a mountain of soil moving across the continent. Um, and it went out to sea. There were boats in the Atlantic that had soil dumped on them from the Midwest. And it's completely horrifying. That soil was 12 feet deep when the Europeans first got there. And there's nothing left. And that's what happened to it all. It all just blew away. It degraded. <laughs> it evaporated. And it's gone. And the problem with degrading soil, every time you do this, you're introducing more oxygen. It should never happen that way. It doesn't happen in nature. But every time you plow, that's what you're doing. You're aerating the soil. You're adding more oxygen. And that increases the biological activity. And long story short, the soil is literally just broken to bits. It's burned out. And it, the carbon is released into the atmosphere. So global warming, you know, a lot of us think of that as starting with the beginning of the industrial age, say year 1800, not actually true. If you back it up to the beginning of agriculture, so maybe 6,000, 8,000 years ago, we have added as much carbon to the atmosphere from that date till about 1800 as we have from 1800 to now. Mm -hmm. Now it's a larger time scale. I'll grant you that. Fossil fuel was absolutely an accelerant, but as much carbon was added simply from doing agriculture. So we need to understand the roots of the problem. And the roots of the problem is that all the roots are gone. I mean, literally, there are no perennial roots building soil. All of it has been um, essentially evaporated into the atmosphere. And that is that first half of it was simply from doing agriculture. So anyone who says that a plant-based diet is the way forward does not understand what we are up against. Right. So we're emitting more and more carbon and we're sequestering less. Exactly. Um, it's not too late. But you have to understand the nature of grasses and ruminants and the fact that their basic job is building soil. And when they are able to work together, that's what they do. That is the only way we're going to sequester that carbon is to let the grasses and the ruminants do it again. And they can get all that carbon back out of the sky. We could actually do it within a decade or two, but we need everybody on board to do that. And that means every political institution has to understand that. And that means us as both political citizens who are going to advocate for it, and also as consumers who can try to direct our dollars in the right place, we need to understand this, that food from grass-based ruminants is literally the only way we are going to save this planet. Right. And that's grass-based, keyword grass-based. I mean, a lot of these yes. farmers out there can be educated still on sustainable farming practices. Yeah, and farmers are not the enemy. I really want to make this point. It, farmers around the world are essentially serfs to the six corporations that control the food supply, and they are completely over a barrel. The number one cause of death for farmers, both in the United States and in India, is suicide. Um, in India, they tend to do it by drinking toxic chemicals, and in the United States, they tend to do it by throwing themselves onto machines and hoping it looks like an accident, and their families can get out of bankruptcy with the payout, and it's absolutely grim no matter which way you look at it, and that's why. They, there is no way to make a living as a farmer, and that's because Again, six corporations control the world food supply. They can command prices that are literally below the cost of production. The only thing in the United States that keeps the farmers in business is that the federal government steps in and gives them subsidies. Most of that money goes right back into the pockets of the corporations. And these poor people are out there 14, 16 hours a day working, working themselves raw, and they can never even turn a profit. And it's not they are not the people at fault. They're just trying their best. Um, the best thing we can do is help them understand that there is an absolutely better way to economic independence as well as a better way to protect their land, and that is to return it to native grasses and get appropriate ruminants on it. Most grass-based farmers can actually turn a profit the very first year, 
And that right away gets people to sit up and listen because they are so tired of living hand to mouth, you know, with the constant terror of the future. Um, and most farmers really do love their land. And when you can show them the difference between, you know, bare soil just blowing away in the dust and here's this incredibly lush place that, you know, came back to life six months after having appropriate ruminants of whatever kind on it. It's really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And people do, they respond. I mean, I've, I've had them in my audience sit and cry, you know, when, when they, they've either done it themselves and they're there to testify to other farmers or they see a way out. Like they see that there might be a future for them and that they really can protect their family's farm and make it a better place and earn a living and all of this. And they're really grateful people to, you know, because there, there's no dignity in what they're doing now. It's just despair. So these are people who are on our side. You know, they need our help. They need to understand this, and they need our, they need our dollars. They need us to put our buying power where we can to help them get out of this hole. Um, so when they make these changes, what does the process look like where these cows are, or these farms are able to be carbon negative? Yeah, I mean, like, it really is going to depend on where you live, right? It's going to look different in North Dakota than it looks in, you know, the Central Valley of California. Um, but the process is really the same where you have to find, hopefully, as many native grasses as possible. But at this point, I'm not particular. Like, I don't even care what grasses they use, and I don't even care what ruminants they use. Like, we could get really pure about this and hope that everybody just does the stuff that's native to that area. We are in a planetary emergency, so I'm not going to get particular. I think you'll have better results if you use the appropriate grasses and ruminants, because obviously, evolutionarily, those are the ones that evolved for that particular climate. But I don't care. Like, use whatever works. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great book that's called... Uh, bison for the broken heart or it's called buffalo for the broken heart and this is a guy it's that exact story he had this family farm he was trying so hard to make it work he's in south dakota um and every year he's just losing money and he keeps trying cows and they keep dying and then it's just like just ghastly or the price collapses and there's nothing he can do and everybody's in the same situation where they're just utterly dependent on market forces they could never control and completely by accident he ends up with 16 bison like native bison arrive on his land and within six months the place just completely comes back to life because bison know how to do that in a way that those cows never could and it's the most amazing inspiring heartbreaking story like you just sit and cry through the whole thing he's a beautiful writer and you can actually buy bison from his from his land now too there's it's marketed like you can actually get it and it he just did the most amazing job but the, the beautiful thing is watching how the animals and the plants all interact with each other. And he describes it so wonderfully in his book. Like the one thing that bison do that um, nobody has an explanation for, they make wallows. So, you know, they had those horns and they will put their heads on the ground and they'll use their horns to dig a hole in the soil. And they somehow know where the water is because when they do that, the little hole will fill up with water, you know, from under the ground, like the, wherever there's like, a little rise in the water table is where they do this so that the hole fills up. And what that does is it provides water for all these other creatures. And if you can picture, you know, the, the upper Midwest in the summer, it's so dry and so hot and just beating down sun. And here they are providing water for creatures that could never find it any other way. So pretty much overnight, this guy notices birds and reptiles and small mammals that he's never seen before on his land. And half the reason is because there's water because the buffaloes made it happen. Right. And it's like they're taking, they're taking care of their community. It's like, again, like all these relationships, these mutual relationships, who knows what those birds do for those bison. 
like who know, we have no idea, but like they're taking care of all those small creatures that are sort of part of their family. They form herds. So when a predator attacks, they get together and they make it less likely for one of them to be singled out. And by, and the, the beauty in these herds is that they trample the soil and then they move on. So this is a key component of sustainable agriculture is these herds. Yes. And you have to let herds behave like herds. And this goes to the fact that none of us are really ourselves if we're not in a community, right? So ruminants cannot behave as their full selves unless the predators are there as well. Because what the predators do, it acts like a pulse. It's like a heartbeat, right? And the pulse is move, move. And that's what the predators do. They keep those herds on the run. So they're only in, in given a, a full you know, cohort of a, a complete community, the predators will keep the ruminants moving. So they will eat for a little bit and they'll eat it heavily, but then they move on really quickly because the predators are always right behind them. And that is how, that's how that community developed. It's how it evolved. And so the grasses respond to that. They respond really, really beautifully to short, heavy grazing. Um, and then the growth comes back incredibly lush after that. Um, the nutrients help, you know, from the, the end products of the bison or the cows. But the other thing is that the action of that grazing actually stimulates more grass growth. Whereas if you just leave them in place with no predators, they'll just eat it to the ground and then ultimately everything's killed. And the missing piece is the predators. So it's our job to behave like those predators. Um, I personally would love it if we would let the wolves come back, but that's a discussion for another day. We don't have to do that right away. <laughs> like, again, I don't care. We're in a huge emergency. Just move those cattle, you know, move those bison, do it the way that a wolf or a bear would do it. Keep them moving. Um, and you can study this. You can figure out how to do this for your location, for your rainfall, for the kind of grass that you have. People like Alan Savory at the Savory Institute. This yeah, is his life's work. To bring him up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly who will do this, and they will teach you how. There are Savory hubs in every region now. You can go to somebody in your area who's already doing this on his or her farm, and they will teach you how to do it. And they are having extraordinary results the world over. Just mm -hmm. the world over, there are now millions of acres that have been restored using this kind of mob grazing method. This is the future. Like we have all got to understand that people are already doing it. We already have solutions to things like global warming, <laughs> environmental destruction, mass species extinction, and human health. We actually do have a set of answers and it goes back to the soil, the grass, and the ruminants. That, that's it, like that's what we need to be doing. I mean, we're still experiencing such a disconnect with the way we eat. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, we go to the grocery store and we buy things in plastic packages. We have no idea where it came from. If we read the label, we're kind of horrified why am I buying vegetables from China? Like it doesn't even make sense. And that's what most people are stuck with. You know, they live in food deserts and that's it. Like corporate America took control and that's all we have access to. And that makes it really hard for, for most people. They don't have time to do the kind of boutique eating that somebody like I can do. Um, and that's why we need a bigger movement than just, oh, please do things better in your personal life, be more pure. Like the good food should be available everywhere. It shouldn't be up to those of us who have time and energy and a giant freezer to figure out where to get it. Um, it should be the standard. And part of the problem is that we're subsidizing absolutely the worst things. Like the, the food that's being subsidized right now is ultimately cheap carbohydrate. So it's wheat and soy and corn and potatoes. And the cheapest calories you can buy are things like white bread and potato chips. If you're a poor person, you're gonna buy what's cheap. You don't really have any options. Poor people aren't stupid they know the most calorie density for the dollars that they have is stupid, horrible things like potato chips. And that's why their health suffers. But ultimately, 
you need food now, today. It, you can't think about 10 years from now when you're poor. And this is just completely wrong. We should be subsidizing the real food, the food that helps people, the food that helps the planet. So all of these, these are political struggles that have to happen on a political level, on a personal level. You know, if you do have time and you do care about this, like get involved locally, figure out where the local farms are, try to support them, get everybody you know to try to support them. You can carpool together, you can make you know, bulk orders that make it more available to everybody. Like there are ways that you can help the farmers and help people you know to get access to better food. The best website that I know for this is called eatwild.com. Mm -hmm. And it's put together by a woman named Joe Robinson. And she has a state-by-state directory. You just click on your state and it will show you all the grass-based farms in your state. And you can go there. Usually people who are doing this are really happy to talk to you as a consumer. You can get a tour of the farm. You can see how happy the animals are. You can see their practices. You can have a personal connection. It's probably in your region. Um, so you're helping that farm. You're helping that family. But you're also helping the local community. You know, We know about the multiplier effect every time you spend dollars locally. You're helping that school teacher, that firefighter. You know, Everybody who lives there gets a boost. So it's just important on every level. Like There's so much we can do even without a lot of time to try to revive all the good things yeah. and you know put our dollars where it's really going to make a difference. I love it. And also when you do go speak with these local farmers or you go out and you cowpool with friends and family, you also get all the odd bits. So you're eating those to tail yeah. and you're not letting anything go to waste. Yeah, you can ask for things like the chicken feet. You can ask for the organ meats, which are incredible. You can ask for the bones, right? You can make incredible broth for everybody you know. Like, broth is such a good thing. And everybody, I mean, they don't even use the bones in most places. Nobody wants them. So get the bones. Learn how to make broth. It's like the best kind of food you can have. And it's usually there for cheaper for free. Also, you can feed your dogs if you have dogs. But get it all. Like, Don't let any of it go to waste. If you don't want the bones, give them to me. I'm all about yeah. that bone broth. <laughs> do you make your own? I do make my own. I also have two giant dogs. So everybody loves the bones. Yeah. And I mean, and that's a good example. You bring up dogs. It's like one in 1.6 dogs in America has cancer because we're also feeding them this artificial bullshit. Yeah. And the, the only animals that get our diseases are the animals that eat our foods, mm -hmm. which is to say, like, I mean, I read the ingredients all the time in dog, you know, when I go to get stuff for my dogs and I cannot believe what people feed their dogs. The first ingredient is always either wheat or soy. And then the second ingredient is always some kind of sugar. I'm like, what have dogs ever done to be treated like this? Like, who thought this was a good idea? They are such obvious carnivores. Why would you give them wheat or corn or sugar and expect this to end well? It just doesn't even make any sense. Are people not thinking? Yeah. I can't figure that one out at all. But anyway, I guess it's because it's cheap. I don't know. But I'm just horrified. Like these poor dogs. It's like a whole row, you know, in the store of dog food. And there's like two things that I would ever feed my dogs. The rest of it is just the most bizarre food for a carnivore. Yeah, even when you grab the healthy bag of food, it's still mostly just going to be just a bunch raw. of grains and nonsense. Yeah, I feed my dogs what they call the barf diet. So it's all, it's raw, it's bones, it's the stuff a carnivore would really eat. Um, and they, they're really, really happy dogs and extremely healthy, especially for their age. So uh, it's worked well. It takes a little more time, but you know. Yeah. Is that barf as in just B-A-R-F? Yeah, B-A-R-F. You can Google that. There's really good information. There's great books that really break it down. It's not that hard, honestly, once you get a grip on the principles and you sort of get your method down. It's the same thing every morning. It's not It's not that difficult. But you sort of have to wrap your mind around the fact that I'm not going to buy a big bag and just scoop. It's going to take five minutes. It's not yeah. going to take 30 seconds. But five minutes. Yeah. If you love your dogs, you're going to do it. Yeah, it's your, it's your companion. We evolve together. Take care of them. 
I know exactly. Yeah, so dogs. I mean, I could talk a lot about dogs and evolution too because they're super cool. But I know that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, a whole other topic. So just a couple more questions for you before we wrap up. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Um, I would have a drink with Christabel Pankhurst, who was the leader of this, or maybe Emmeline, her mom. They were the leader of the women's suffrage movement in Britain, and they were incredible strategists. And they rocked it. They did it. Like they got women the vote, and they did such extraordinary things. And they were so brave. And I would just love to have a drink with either of them. Awesome. So what are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always be done? Uh, feed the dogs. Absolutely. The dogs come first. Um, another thing for me is what else? Um, I would say grass-fed beef no matter what. Because that's the thing that makes me feel the best. So that has to happen every day as well. Um, another thing is... Try to remember at least once, but usually multiple times, that it can be worse. It has been worse. No matter how bad it is, somebody else is having a worse day, and just be grateful. And I know that sounds like such a stupid platitude, but honestly, if you just stop and remind yourself, it's all good. You know, like even on the day when like my partner was having open heart surgery, it's still like, you know what? Like there are people who have it worse. Like, what if this was happening in a refugee camp? Like there'd be no hope. Like this is probably going to end well because we're in a really nice hospital and we have insurance, but that's not true for everyone. Like it still could be worse. No matter how bad it is, it can be worse. And even if the worst happens, at least you had a good life with a lot of love. So it can still be worse, you know? So just remind yourself. And I, like, again, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it really helps just to put the brakes on. Maybe this is only true for those of us who tend to be depressive or melancholic. But for me, it's such a good reminder. Just, it's a gorgeous day. The sun is shining. There's oxygen. There's flowers. There are hummingbirds. Like there's so many beautiful things in the world. Just be grateful you got to have it. Yeah, it's always a beautiful day if you know where to look. Exactly. Any parting words for my listeners? I know that this is huge. Like what we are up against right now seems utterly overwhelming. Even just for some people, getting out of bed, going to work, and making sure your mortgage get, gets paid and your kids are fed can be incredibly overwhelming and I know that and now you add to that just the level of terror that I think a lot of us are feeling about the situation of the planet global warming extinction levels extinction rates it's like our hearts are just breaking sometimes from just the amount of grief that's there but it's better to have a broken heart than no heart at all so the fact that you care about those things let you know that you are human and that it, you can still, you're going to do good, right? Like mm -hmm. there's still, like you can find, you can find the things to do that will make it okay. So, and there is still hope for all of us for this planet. Like I have not given up yet. I still know that the grasses and the ruminants can fix it. So it's still possible to sh turn the ship around. We just have to listen to our hearts and do it. Right. We're all in this together. We got this. Yeah. <laughs> so where should people go to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? Um, I have a website, and it's easy because it's learkeith.com, and that's kind of a joke because I have a weird name. Um, it's hard to spell, but the easiest way to find it is actually just type in the name of my book, which is The Vegetarian Myth. You can definitely remember that. You don't have to know how to spell much, and if you type in Vegetarian Myth, you will find me because there's only one book with that name, and it's me, so that will take you to me right away. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review, following me on social media at Prime Philosophy, and just by spreading the word. Jacoba.